Come in. Hey, man, I'm sorry I'm late. The train is Shut up! You're here! And good thing, because we've got lots of work. The talk show featuring unforgettable guests with incredible jobs. And now, here's my boss and your host, Katie Lazarus. Hello, welcome to Employee of the Month. I'm Katie Lazarus, and I'm so excited to bring you this episode from the live taping at Joe's Pub. You can go to the next live taping April 16th and then uh, May 21st and June 25th. I just go to joespub.com to get tickets. I'm excited to bring this interview to you. It's with the formidable actor Cynthia Nixon, and I think one of her greatest gifts is that she's able to bring a depth of character, whether it's a character that would genuinely seem maybe at best like a one-dimensional <laughs> um, figure if it were in less capable hands, to grappling with gripping and unanswerable questions like uh, death and dying, uh, which she did so well in Wit to just also being really funny in a very dark way in the big C and across roles. So I also was really interested. We spoke about her working with her mom because from a very young age, her mom who had failed at acting, it was what some people would say, I would say she just found another <laughs> career path that was more fulfilling. Either way, she trained Cynthia and directed her from a very, very young age in a way that very few people have, but also those relationships can go in so many different directions and usually not necessarily positive. The child can completely feel overwhelmed and break down, or the parents can become overly enmeshed, like a Mama Rose, or just think about Andre Agassi and his father, or in general, to be able to cultivate those boundaries that are necessary where a kid gets his own or her own sense of identity. It's a really hard road, and at the same time, wow, what an incredible thing to have a parent who happen to love the same thing that you do and happen to be really talented at what you do and help you pave your way. So that was really fascinating to hear about. I've actually never heard of another relationship quite like it. So without further ado, here is my interview with Cynthia Nixon, which was taped live at Joe's Pub. I will let you know that we're having a second follow-up interview, so you should subscribe to the podcast so you can hear both of our interviews because there was just too much to get into. Here's our interview. Will you hold the mic? Is that okay? Uh, we can hold it for yeah, you. I like giving you, you stage too. direction. Yeah. 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 Only so the podcast listeners can hear your beautiful voice. I'm here now. Oh, isn't that good? That's why you do all those voiceovers. Um, over the audiobooks. You do I a lot wish. of audiobooks. You yeah. do a lot of audiobooks. You want a Grammy for it. Oh, no, for the movie, for Inconvenient Truth. Yes, I, I do have a Grammy for that. <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I, you know, there is, a, you know, a very uh, emotionally fulfilling and extremely financially profitable uh, career to be had in voiceovers. I do not have that career. Um, I do like, you know, flowers in the attic, stuff like that. Do you really do VCS? Because, I mean, not anymore, because I'm, I'm, I'm almost 50 now, but for a long time I had a very young voice, and I still have a pretty young voice considering how old I am. So for a long time I did, like, you know, young adult fiction. Not a lot of money in recording young adult fiction, surprisingly. Did you do Sweet Valley High, too, or just Flowers in the Attic? 
uh, pedal, Pedals in the Wind. I, oh I don't know God. that one. Nora I did Roberts, the V.C. Andrews, right? and then, you know, and then V.C. Andrews died, and then it was like, in the style of V.C. Andrews, you know. <laughs> so um, you were it was like child. Jesus was dead, but all the apostles were out there writing sequels, you know. That's what they'd be doing right now. That's what they would be doing. And they'd be running their self-help seminars and yeah. everything like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, you were a child actress who has yet to end up in rehab. There's still time. I'm only, <laughs> I'm only 49, almost 49. What do you, what do you credit to having um, been so thoughtful? And I'm actually really just asking, can you tell me, talk about your relationship with your mom? <laughs> <laughs> We're just going to, late. We're just going to jump to the chase. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, do, I do credit my mother. Um, I also frankly credit New York City, you know? I think... Um, I think there is a particular thing that, you know, I have three kids and they're New York City kids, like I am a New York City kid. And I, I you know, you can get into some mischief here, but I think there is a, a kind of a, a level-headedness to, to kids uh, who grew up in New York that they, you know, they, they learn to fend for themselves in, a, I think, a really helpful way. You know what I mean? It's not like they're constantly driven places. And, you know, adults speak to them by and large like they're, you know, interested in what they have to say. So I think from a very early age in New York City, in a good way, you learn to take responsibility for yourself. Yeah, I definitely, I feel like on one level, it seems like you have so many opportunities. Like you can take kids to baby DJ class and they can go to Alvin <laughs> Ailey and like, you know, learn the, the, from the best dancers. I mean, it really is genuinely incredible to be able to go to school here. Um, I, I meant that earnestly, that like you can take anything, particularly in the right, arts. I didn't grow school, up with any of that, uh, that Right, but also, you know, never even mind school. I mean, there's so many great schools here, but you can also just walk down the street. That's all you need to do. Or you can go to a museum or you can, you know what I mean? It's, it's nice to have a place to go to, though. You it, know? it is. And also, <laughs> nice to have a place to go to. I mean, walking down the street gets a little, you know. You think? Little, yeah. Come on, that's not true. I don't feel like you just walk outside. Really? And, and you're just soaking in all of this culture and everything like that. No, I don't mean culture. <laughs> no, I don't mean culture. I don't mean like art. Yeah. But I mean like literally, you all you need to do is like walk down the street. Like you, you can, you know, if you have money, you can buy yourself a coffee. And if you don't, you can sit on a stoop. And all you need to do is just sit and watch. I mean, it's really interesting, yeah. you know. Yeah. And and I also feel like. You know, there is a magical age in New York City, which is 11. 11 is the perfect age? Well, it's not the perfect age, but it is the magical age. Okay, because, what, tell, tell us what's magical Because about what happens at 11 is reasonable people who have 11-year-old children, f let them f go free. Oh, yeah, they're called free range now or something. You don't even just... <laughs> I really hope Slope. not. They do. They have a free range movement. Cannibals much prefer they that. They can't no. just say, like, we're letting our kids out. They have, like, a title for it and everything. Really? Yeah. Well, Your I don't know. I think 11, 11 is the age when you could reasonably expect to at least ride a bus, if not the subway. And, you know, and I feel like, you know, other places, you know, you're, until you're, like, 16, 17 years old, you're, like, in the back all, like, gothic and, like, <laughs> as your mom drives you to, like, the Denny's, you know? But here, you don't, you know, you can, you know, the age of consent in New York, 11. Is that true? Your, your mom were, went to school with Paul Let's Newman. Let's return to my mom. It's not New York City. It's my mom. No, which is true. 
Yes, I'm sorry. My mom. I don't have any 11-year-olds, and I'm not 11, so it's like I got to have a destination. I can't just roam outside, and I can't afford the coffee. But can't, really, you don't just want to, you know, like I my mom, like my mom. <laughs> if we just insert her there, then the conversation will be. You know, my oh, mom, you. you know, taught me the value of sitting at a restaurant and just sitting, you know, sitting in a restaurant. I agree. And soaking, and, and soaking up the conversation. Right. Or you. like, you know, we would, we would have our favorite Chinese restaurant on First Avenue and 79th Street near where I grew up. And we would get our window table and we would watch the New York Marathon. And all those poor suckers were like out there standing on the street. We were like eating hot and sour soup and watching the runners go by. I mean, it's great. You could, you know. And as someone who used to run those, it does. It was a really wonderful experience in New York. When you could smell the Chinese food when you would go by and you would be like, yeah. oh. And in different furrows, there were, different, there were so many different cultures right. that you would run Cheering by. You on. Um, and then there were people who would pee next to you and you didn't understand why there was the, the water runners? on the street. Yeah. Who can blame them? Yeah. If who you're running a marathon, them? really, all bets are off. Whatever you so want to do, go ahead. It's so true. I just Whatever rem- you want to do. I remember I, um, my cousin beat me by two hours and he walked seven miles. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was done with that. But you <laughs> ran the, the New York Marathon? Yes. Do you know how everyone does that? I mean, that. come on. Everyone does that. And that was not meant on that, on that part. It was meant as to most, um, mainly because it, it, anyone can do it because there's so much culture to soak up around you as you run. I was agreeing with you. Um, back to your mom. She went to Yale with uh, Paul Newman? She did. Did you get to meet him? Um, I never met him, but we still have the Paul Newman chair in our house. What's that? That's a chair he wanted to get rid of, and we took it. <laughs> We've had it re- recovered a number of times. Paul Newman chair. Yeah, no, they did... Um, you get to they, sit with Paul Newman. Yeah, well, where he sat. Um, they did Laura and the Gentleman Caller. You know, I don't know how you know that, but I guess you found it on the internet. You can find anything on the internet. But yeah. Well, we'll find out... Um, and Uta Hagen, you both studied with, with Hagen? her? Hagen, excuse yes, me. Like Hagen I'm does. I'm very uncultured because I need to be soaking up more culture in New York. <laughs> and then I would know. Hagen does, they're, they're really yes, just my from mother the Bronx. Stu- my mother studied with Uta Hagen, yes. Um, I, 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 in a lame attempt to emulate my mother, at the age of 28, studied with Uta Hagen for a semester. But it was, you know, it was eye-opening. Um, can you talk a little bit about working with your mom as a acting coach? Because I just thought it was fascinating to find out that you had said she was your first teacher. Right. So when I started, you know, I mean, my mother, my mother indoctrinated me very early. I mean, she literally took me to Shakespeare in the Park at like age four. And, you know, <laughs> when my children at four, I think like, wow, you want to go see King Lear? I mean, it's ridiculous. <laughs> But uh, she indoctrinated me very early into theater, and it wasn't like, you know, kiddie theater. It was like Shakespeare and stuff, and old movies. And um, so by the time I was 11, 11, I was 12 is really when I got an agent. And we, 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 we really patted ourselves on the back, my mother and I, that we had waited, you know. 11, age of consent in New York. Um... But yeah, so, so I had not had any acting training or anything, but my mother had 
you know, been an, tried to tried to be a, an actress for 15 years in New York and went to Yale Drama School and studied with Uta Hagen, and she actually had a, quite a lot of knowledge. And um, so she worked with me, you know, prepared me for all my auditions, and then when I would get parts, she would she would prepare me for those parts. And I mean, we would work on that very meticulously, and I and I loved it. You know, I mean, I I at a certain point I got scared about it. I, 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 what was the fear? fear from? Well, I got scared that it wasn't actually me at all. It was all her, right? Mm. So after, you know, the first few years, it was great. And then when I started to become a grown-up, I thought, you know, it's like, but if I don't have the heroine before I go on, you know, will I be any good? You know what I mean? So, and so then at a certain point, I did have to, you know, sort of... Separate move yourself. away. Although you know, as long as she lives, she would come and she would give me notes, and I would I would welcome the notes. I mean, they were very astute notes. But I think because my mother and I worked so closely, the thing that I, I that I think about my mother really, like she had a friend who went to Yale Drama School, who was a woman also, but who was in the directing program. And I think my my mother did not. I think my mother was probably a really good actress, but she, for whatever reason, did not have a lot of success at it. But I think my mother was really a director, and I think she couldn't conceive of her. You know, in the fifties, I don't think she could conceive of herself as a director. But I feel like the way she taught me to be an actor, she didn't. I don't know. She wasn't some genius at you know the method or something. She sort of taught me to be my own director. So now that I've just barely you know started directing. It feels so comfortable because I feel like, in the same way, like if you've been, if you've been, if you've loved your teachers and you're a, you know, you're a good student, then you want to be a teacher. If you've loved your parents and you love being their kid, you want to be a parent. Well, in the same way, you know, I I love my mother and I love most of my directors. So I sort of I like that relationship, and it's like I like being the actor in that relationship, but I'm also excited to become the director in that relationship. Um, tell me a little bit about when you were starting out. I have a little clip. I believe that um, was this after school special, um, Seven Wishes of a Rich Kid. Was oh, that yes. your first kiss? That was my real first job. Yes. Okay, let's see if wow, we can see I can't a clip believe you had it. Um, I taped it from watching it on. Really? Yeah. Butterfly <laughs> McQueen is in this, you know? <laughs> I, thought I don't have any scenes with her, though. <laughs> let's see if we can. Betsy, what are you oh. doing there? I need to narrate. do the dishes, right, Katie? Exactly. How now, that is not Seven Wishes of a Rich Kid. Which, what was that one? That is It's No Crush, I'm in Love. It's No Crush, I'm in Love. So that was a different after-school special? Yes, I did Seven Wishes of a Rich Kid when I was 
12. Okay. And I'm like 16, 17 here. I, can, I love that. I clearly don't know how old people are. I, they're just I, young to me. They're 11 <laughs> yes. to 17. Right. No. But yeah, that was a good one. I like that one. And Seven Wishes for a Rich Kid was when it first started. Seven Wishes of a Rich Kid, right, was, starring, was about a little rich kid played by an, an actor named Robbie Rist, who was a little blonde kid, quite short blonde kid. Like Richie Rich? Yeah, who wore uh, gold wire rim glasses, who looked like John Denver. Maybe you remember this kid? And he was like on Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. He played the Reverend Jimmy Joe Jeter. Anyway... Um, he was a little rich kid and Butterfly McQueen who was Prissy in Gone with the Wind she was his like magical fairy godmother in his television because no one would play with him or talk to him because he was rich and anyway I was a girl at school he liked I think I was one of his wishes or something and he was much shorter than me and I was 12 and I remember I had an exchange with Robbie Rist on the set when he was a star he's famous he's been in a lot of things you know and he somehow my age came out and he was like you're 12 I was tall and I was like how old are you he's like I'm he was like I'm 17 <laughs> what it was an awkward moment tell me a little bit about the chemistry tests you have to do when you're when you are doing roles and things like that like the chemistry tests yeah I've seen directors where they're like we have to see what their chemistry is before the I don't mean science I mean like to see Robbie Rist and I had no chemistry tests so, we would have failed, I'm afraid. So when you're having, like, kissing scenes um, with people, do, you, do they try to match you with a good partner beforehand? With the, meaning, like, when you, you have, like, a date on a show, do they want to know if you're going to have good chemistry with that guy or they just pick an actor? Well, you know, on Sex and the City, we would have a different guy every week. Was that fun? It was great. I mean, there was like a, you know, a grab bag. It was like, what am I going to get this week? Um, some of them were guys I knew. Some of them were guys I, I wanted to know. I didn't want to know. It was a, it was a grab bag. But I, I would say the only thing was, you know, when, when, uh, when the guy that Miranda was going to, you know, marry and, all, you know, go down the road with quite a ways, they, that, that was the only guy they didn't cast that they that they introduced me to and put me in a room with first because if we hadn't gotten along that wouldn't have been maybe that's what I'm thinking good. is the chemistry test they just put you in a room and see if you get along yeah I mean we might have read I don't I don't remember now and when they were going to hire Blair Underwood because he's famous they were like how about Blair Underwood I was like that sounds great how about Blair Underwood we have a picture of, of you with with um, Blair Underwood I yeah. Sounds, yeah they are that's oh yeah there he is you know Blair is a co-Grammy recipient with me for an inconvenience. Is, is this Mrs. Doubtfire in the background? Yeah, Mrs. Doubtfire not having it. <laughs> Jealous much? Not pleased to be watching that. Sorry. Did you get to keep all the clothes? I got to keep a lot of the clothes. Yeah. I mean, I... Clothes! That's a flashback. That's why I have that bad hair. That's intentionally bad hair. That's a flashback. That's supposed to, that was described in the script as a Dorothy Hamill cut. I think they achieved that. And, you, and you've talked about this role as the first time that you got to play a really sexy 
character or a, a bombshell is the word you've used to describe. Yes, right. I mean, uh, the, right, that, the, that these women, right, that, that the character that I was playing was so frankly sexual. She had so many sexual, uh, sexual partners and also, you know, the way the clothes were that my, you know, body was showcased, you know. Um, yeah, it was it was it was totally different because again, I'm like I'm not a I'm not a Hollywood actress. Per se. I'm I'm a New York actress, and it's, it's what is different. the difference? What is the difference? Um, well, I mean, you know, when you're in Hollywood, you're in more films, and it's more about image. And when you're in New York, it's more about stage or like character-driven films. So it's more about you know character or it's creating a character. Okay, because like something like Sex in the City, even though it was shot here, I can see it being shot in L.A. Mm, no. I don't think so. Okay, got it. You know, the thing is... The, the, th- the thing is, so when I, when I started acting, when I started acting, um, so uh, it, it's a long story, but basically there was a guy that my mother went to Yale Drama School with, and he had a son, and he was a director, and he had a son... Um, who was a child actor who was in a movie called Rich Kids and was in the miniseries Holocaust and his name was Jeremy. You know, Rich Kids, Holocaust, you know, the gamut. <laughs> anyway, Jeremy had a manager and they, and, they, and they set me up with Jeremy's manager and it was very exciting. It was like, oh, well, all of a sudden things were moving very quickly. And um, I was trying to keep my expectations really low and my parents were also trying to keep my expectations really low. And so I, I didn't have any aspirations about really being an actor or really being in things. I thought, I'll make commercials and I will save money for college. Like, it was really, yeah, you know, I'm not going to be Dooza or something. I'm just going to, like, sell Pepsodent. But the thing was, and I made some commercials over the years. Like, I did, like, a Jello, and I did, like, a Donkey Kong and I did a Kodak. But... You know, for the amount of commercials I auditioned for, I didn't do that many, really. And when I was, and I would go on, you know, two or three a day, it was enormously time consuming. So when I was a teenager, I was auditioning for some commercial, and the casting director did something that no one had ever done for me before. She took me around and she showed me my tape. She said, I want you to look, I want you to see what you're doing. And I watched it. And she said, You see how you look? You look embarrassed. Wow. They're not going to cast you because you look embarrassed. And I have to say that in all my eagerness, I thought, like, I'm blonde and Midwestern looking. I can sell Breck, you know? I can be a spokesperson. But the fact of the matter is, like, fate or, you know, my intrinsic personality helped me because I was actually good at playing parts that involved acting and, and in terms of, like, making my face vapid and just selling something, like, I, 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 I couldn't do it. I never would book commercial. I feel like I would, like, stand there and I'd be like, don't buy this. Don't buy this. <laughs> really, you shouldn't buy it. There's no reason. No, you have to spend. Like, I definitely had that same feeling when I would go in for commercial auditions. But right. with you, I mean, you were acting in serious plays from a, a pretty young age, relatively speaking to the right, rest but, of us. Right, but again, I was, I was there, you know, Waiting to sell out, hoping to sell out. Do you know what I mean? But I think it was like a New York thing. It was like, my face at rest seems like it would be good in a commercial. But as soon as I start to speak, it's just too, there's just too much happening. And I think I was also, it's a good, it shows that your character and it shows who you are as a person. 
Um, and I think when I was saying that, Sex and the City, the movies, I guess, I felt like those could have been shot in L.A. and the... But I don't think You thought they had so. a lot of depth. You think they had a lot of depth, those films. What? You, had, you thought they had a lot of depth, the films. I, I like the films, and I think they are about character, and I think they are about, um, you know, I feel like, I don't know, like if you want to take a like a um, stereotypical Hollywood movie and a stereotypical New York movie, mm -hmm. New York movies are all about how our personality fucks us up, you know? Yeah. And Hollywood movies are like, it'll be fine. You know, there's a wind machine, you know? And I, you know, e Sex and the City, in its most fantasy-like, I, I feel like it never told that story. It always told the, like, you're, you're, you know, the stuff inside you, you know, you can't ignore it. It's, it's going to be a problem. I loved the television series for that reason and thought that it really did show that neuroses and was thoughtful. I mean, I was so fascinated that... Um, like, Sarah, as a freelance writer, I was so impressed by her wardrobe that she could afford so many things. Um, but outside of that, I thought that it was a phenomenally astute and, and shrewd and revelatory television series. And, and I, I will go back and watch the films not on an airplane, and I will look at them from new eyes and, and see, them from, see the New York in them. I will find it. I'm sure I will. Um, but once you had that... I mean, you've been working for 20 years before you got that show. And I was just curious, like, yeah, you'll get described sometimes in write-ups, they'll say she's a bankable actress. And I was just curious, what does that mean and, and what does that do for your career? Right. I mean, right. I had been acting, uh, you know, I mean, so my very first things were on film and television. And then I, a couple of years later, I started doing stage, right? And I had... Done a million plays and and um, phenomenal plays with unbelievable yes, directors. Yes, a lot of really great plays. But um, it wasn't until Sex and the City where I believe they would sort of describe you. No, as, totally. As so when actor. I was, yeah, I mean, very early on in Sex and the City, I got offered a you know a lead in an independent film that a, a friend of mine had written, but still they never would have been able to offer it to me, you know. And I I always remember I did this one you know, TV movie that I was with Scott Bakula and I and, and Eva Marie Saint that I, I just totally loved. And it was about a woman in Appalachia and the depression and stuff. Now, my even though I'm from New York and my parents are from Chicago and Texas, respectively, my grandmother is from Appalachia. You know, she's from the Missouri Ozarks. And uh, so I feel like I really could totally get that character. But I, I said to the, and I was like, it was a very juicy part, you know, she's dying of tuberculosis, she's got like eight kids. I mean, it was great. And, um, and, but I said to the director, how did you ever think of me for this? Because I know I have all this Ozark in my background, but how would you ever know that, you know? Why did you cast me? He said, oh, I've been a fan of yours for years, and I would have cast you in a million projects that I've done. But when the time came to, to, um, cast this project I received for this particular role that you're doing the wife I received a list of of women who had the enough TVQ which means enough uh, people out watching television know who you are and might be think to tune in if you were in something and he said you know I get those lists for every thing that I cast but you had never been on the list before I would have cast you right away but you would never on the list but all of a sudden there you were so I saw your name I was like oh don't need to go any farther great so, so that's like a yeah. very 
you know, uh, focused view of like what Sex in the City did for me. Yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit about your your theater work, if that's if that's possible. Um, I don't know that that's possible because <laughs> it seems to be something that you, you always come back to, yes. and, and doing. And I just wanted to hear a little bit about um, what you're working on right now. Right now, so right now, I directed my very first play called Rashida Speaking Rashida. at the New Group. Scott Elliott, who, who runs the new group, they're having their 20th anniversary season. He founded it 20 years ago. Uh, gave me this tremendous opportunity, and uh, it's been fantastic. And it's closing on Sunday after this very successful run. Um, uh, so there's a lot of things going on. What do you want me to talk about first? I, well, one thing I wanted to ask is... Um, You've done so many, well, I'd say theater and pl- and um, television and film about cancer. Yeah. You've done Wit, and you were in The Big C, and now you have James White coming out. Do you ever think about branching out to other diseases? <laughs> <laughs> huh, it's a good question. It's Well, I, you know, tuberculosis. You haven't seen my tuberculosis yeah. work. That's, That's some true. of my finest work. <laughs> That's true. And I was in Angels in America. There wa- I wasn't sick in that, but... And Eleanor Roosevelt, I remember you were helping your husband who had... He had polio. Yeah. It was close. You had funny teeth. Funny teeth. That's not actually a medical condition, <laughs> but... <laughs> yeah, so I had cancer. I had, I had some kind of what I, my, I would term minor cancer in 2006. And when I then did wit in whatever year that was, I guess that was... 2011 maybe I'm not even sure 2011-2012 I think um, everybody would ask me about my cancer as like preparation for the thing and I was you know I would not at all my, 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 my experience with my cancer had absolutely nothing to do with the you know in, incredibly uh, vicious cancer that the character had and the incredibly devastating experimental chemo that she was going through but, but I, I you know but my, but my friends who had, had died of AIDS in the 90s and that I was there for that, that was what I, you know, um, drew on for that. Although, you know, in this film that I... That James White. James White, yeah. right. I certainly drew on not only my friend's death, not from cancer, but from AIDS. Um, and, and I even drew, frankly, on my experience of playing the character in Wit, which is fascinating, yes. right? Like another fictional character, but also my mother had died of cancer that same year. And so, uh, you know, I was obviously there for that. And so, um, and, and the, the filmmaker... Um, his mother also. His mother, I mean, it's a very autobiographical film for him. And so his mother had died of cancer. And what was amazing to me, we were trying to figure out what to do with my hair in the film. Um, because she's had some chemo, but she's not really having chemo. So he sort of wanted her hair to be like recovering from chemo, but not, you know. And so, you know, the question is like, am I going to shave my, you know, whatever. Head again, because you'd already done that right. once. And I said to him, I really, you know, I really don't want to shave my head again. It was not really a good career move for me. <laughs> and I said, but I, you know, I, I don't want you to think I'm like a, you know, a wimp. You know, I did shave my head for this part that I did when I was in WIT. And he said, oh, yes, my mother saw you in that. And that was startling because I had done, I had done wit in like 2011, 2012. And we were now in 2013. So it, it was astonishing to me how recently his mother had died. And then he had come up with this entire script. And then he was 
you know, making this film. I mean, it was really, it was, it was, it, and it was, it's also wild to be playing a person that you know has seen you. Yeah. And that, that she was, was ill. She was really obviously pretty ill at that point. And she came, she came, she chose, chose to come to that play. So. Well, and I hope that, you know, you feel known in that way. In yeah. Way. I mean, it's very, you know, it, when I did, you know, this play Rabbit Hole, which yes, is an important which is, play, and that's which, about is, a which is about, a right, a family loses a child. I mean, that was the, like, the highest compliment you could ever get, is when people would stand at the stage door that you didn't know, and they would want to talk to you afterwards, and they would say, we've lost a child, and I just wanted to say how, how right you got it, and, and how this was actually really helpful for us to come and see this and therapeutic in that way yeah to yeah. be and to right like you say to be to be shown that like yeah. you like someone out there knows what that is and they're brave enough even though you know the playwright hadn't gone through that but he but he wrote it anyway i think there's too much emphasis that one has to always experience the same thing that's a very american thing that i have to i have to have had the exact same experience when none of us do i think that empathy just comes from drawing on one's own and listening Right. Yes. Although, you know, I mean, I, I, I agree with you, and I think we shouldn't treat it like such a, such a bugaboo, such a taboo. But I do think there is something to also to, you know, making sure that the people telling those stories are people who really do know, either because they've done an enormous amount of research and they've really talked to people who've been through it or they've been through it themselves. I think that's you know? what sets you apart um, as an actor, frankly. Um, that you do so much research into them. Um, do we have time to show a, a couple clips of the new films? Um, I'm not sure which order these are in. Um, one is, um, but I know that it's not Seven Wishes of a Rich Kid. Um, one is the Stockholm Presence. The Stockholm, uh, so, Pen Stockholm um, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Sorry, I'm having Stockholm Syndrome. Um, <laughs> And that is not about cancer, and that is not about tuberculosis, but it is, it is gruesome. Yes! <laughs> it's about a family whose daughter was kidnapped when she was like four um, and has been away all this time. She's played by Saoirse Ronan. She comes back. She's now like 21. And her parents initially think that this is, I don't know what scene this is, but her parents initially think this is like the greatest thing that's ever happened to them. Not only is their daughter alive and well, but she's being returned to them. But what becomes clear almost immediately is she doesn't remember them at all. She doesn't feel any connection to them, and she's totally bonded to her captor. So I, her mother, kind of kicked my husband out and just, you know, set about to, in, in my complete ignorance of how this might be done, try to deprogram her. So I sort of uh, become her, her captor. So I, they both premiered at Sundance on the same day, and this will be sort of like running around Sundance, where you don't know which film you're going to. But one will be, one, we're going to see at least one of one them. One is James White, where... Well, I, either kidnapping or cancer, guys. <laughs> Chris Abbott or Saoirse Ronan. This is Sersha. Kidnapping. Yes. <laughs> you used to love beans. Your Aunt Jill had a bead shop before she moved to Santa Fe. And you love to go in there and sink your hands deep into the bins of glass beads.
I wanted to get you some, but I was always afraid you'd eat them when I wasn't looking. What are you making? A string of beads. room for about six more but I have ten beads left which um, which ones do you think I should leave out any of them well help me out which ones do you think I know things oh I, I know. wasn't nothing to him he raised me okay Also, ones isn't a word. When does that come out? What? When does that come out? Oh, I thought you were going to say, how does it come out? Like, is it a happy ending? <laughs> I figured not. If you're not such ending. a happy ending. Um, I, think, uh, I, I think it's been sold to Lifetime, and I think they're going to they're gonna show it there. Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just want to ask one last question. You were so thoughtful politically and, and genuinely active, um, and you've been such a strong supporter of de Blasio, and I was wondering if you got free parking out of it. <laughs> I have no free parking, no free parking, but I'm not really a car person. I'm really a subway person. I'm My wife is a car person. I'm a subway person. <laughs> no free subway, no unlimited subway card. No, I'm a proud <laughs> Metro card purchaser. I know, we've been on the subway together. We've been on the subway. Katie didn't have a Metro card, but luckily I had an no. extra. No, that's not true. Katie did not have money left on her Metro card. Different story. This is, remember, pre-sex in the city. <laughs> um, this has been so wonderful to, to have you here, Cynthia. And I know that you're working on um, a movie about Emily Dickinson. Yes. Um, which And you were saying that you were preparing by getting into shape. What about Soul Cycle? Um, <laughs> makes you I'm get doing ready Mark for... Fisher Fitness. I met Mark Fisher, who runs this hilarious, very, you know, Broadway um, chorus boy, chorus girl thing over on 9th, and, uh, 40, uh, 9th Avenue and 39th Street. And I met him here on this stage because we did a public forum here together, Mark Fisher and I. So I'm not, I, I'm not under the illusion that, you know, Emily Dickinson has a lot of muscles or anything. But I think she's a little thinner than me, so I'm going out there and, you know, sweating to the oldies. Well, I got you some, some oh. olive oil that you can have with your salad, since that's what you're going to be eating I, as yes, you Yes, I am. <laughs> wow, at Il Buco, um, very nice. And some toys for your, your kids, as well as a uh, Hillary Clinton doll. <laughs> <laughs> This is very cute. New out this is what I feel like I'm looking like around some days, <laughs> but not in a bad, not a bad way. Um, maybe you can talk some sense into her, um, so she can be ready to run. Uh, you know, I send her emails, will. and she just keeps erasing them, and she keeps deleting why. them. <laughs> 
Um, this has been an absolute pleasure and privilege to have you here. You're a phenomenal actor. Thank and I'm so, you. so grateful for your time here. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Thank Thank Nixon. That's it for this episode of Employee of the Month. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Ian Mazoff for editing this. Thank you to Josh Rogeson. Thank you to Jelly D for being an incredible intern and allowing us to record these here. Thanks to all of you for listening. Go to employeeofthemonthshow.com to find out about future live tapings as well as ways you can donate and um, also how to check out more episodes. Talk to you soon.